I am uh, Gaurav Hinduja. I'm the co-founder of Axio. Uh, we were previously called Capital Flow, and last few months are now being called Axio. Float was one of the earliest lending fintech startups in India, starting out way back in 2013. And like any startup that has been around for a decade, they have gone through a fascinating journey that not only illustrates the evolution of the founders, but also the evolution of the tech ecosystem in India. In this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks to Gaurav Hinduja, the founder of Capital Float that has now been rebranded as Axio. Axio is one of the most well-funded startups in the lending space, having raised about $200 million till date and is a market leader in the BNPL space, lending to millions of consumers. But the journey of reaching here has been full of many highs and lows and Gaurav candidly shares his lessons from a decade of building and scaling India's pioneering lending fintech. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast and any audio streaming app to learn business fundamentals directly from the veterans of the startup ecosystem. I applied to business school and I went to Stanford and um, that's where I met Shashank, who's my co-founder today. And what's his background? Like, before you guys... Yeah, so he was, before Stanford, he was at uh, McKinsey in New York for about, I think, another six years or so, doing a lot of work in financial services, government, risk, etc. So brought a lot of the global background, strategic background, you know, and I brought a lot of the India-centric supply chain operations back down. And so, you know, towards the middle of second year of business school, we were pretty excited to come back to India. We said, hey, why don't we start a business? We didn't know what we were going to start. We just liked the fact that we were going to work with each other because we both brought different skill sets to the table. And so we said, let's go down this adventure and find a business to start. So a bit unconventional in that sense, compared to most entrepreneurs who actually face a problem and start, and start a company around that problem. We were two entrepreneurs actually looking for a problem and spent a year after business school coming through about 20, 30 ideas before we landed on this. So uh, tell me that, uh, you know, that decision-making framework you yeah, used to yeah, finalize. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting one. So we had three points and every business we evaluated had to have three points. You know, if your co-founder is McKinsey consultant, everything is very, <laughs> everything is very strategic, right? So, um, but we actually did a bunch of soul searching and the three things that we came up with were, you know, one, it had to be in India and it had to have quite some kind of impact in India, right? So that was where our hearts were. So anything like photo sharing, et cetera, was ruled out because we didn't feel that it was impactful. Second, it had to be have technology at its core, right? Uh, need not be a hardcore tech business, but should be able to kind of leverage technology. Having spent time in the valley, you know, you got access to a lot of those amazing companies there. You understood how tech companies can be built. And the third is, it had to have scale, right? It was not, we were not looking to do a lifestyle business. Nothing wrong with lifestyle businesses, just that not what we wanted. And so we always had aspirations of at least, you know, I'm serving millions of customers and getting to a billion dollar revenue or billion dollar valuations. Everything that a typical entrepreneur, startup entrepreneur thinks of you there. So these are the three kind of uh, uh, check boxes that every business idea we thought of had to fulfill. And uh, we looked at 20, 30 ideas and, you know, eliminated Actually, we had to have a process of elimination with a business school professor of ours. So there, there were some funny ones in there as well. You know, we both love to eat. Like I said, we are, we are South Indians. 
And so one of, one of them was actually opening up a quick service Idli Dosa restaurant, right? But a franchise model, so you can do it on scale. But I eliminated because we thought we'd be the only customers. <laughs> uh, we looked at we looked at preschools. We looked at apparel e-commerce because I kind of that was our, a little bit of my background, like uh, Mintra Jabon. Yes, trend. exactly. Okay, so it was just maybe a year or two after Mintra Jabon. Uh, we looked at you know, only you know, we looked at things like uh, uh, what Urban Camp does today, which is uh, home services, etc. And um, financial services at FinTech was always one amongst them. Uh, because, you know, at that point of time in the valley, there were the likes of the lending clubs, the prospers, etc. who started to do some amazing stuff that came to credit and lending. Both of us had no background in credit, but it was always one among them. And we came here and we said, okay, we finally narrowed down on that idea in 2014. So you thought of this as a consumer play? Like, uh, no, for no, no, actually, you know, one of them solved credit. And at that point, we weren't taking consumer, SME, or et cetera, et cetera. We just said, let's start there. And as it happened, while we were doing that, a friend of mine who was running a small garment shop was looking to borrow money. And so he approached us and we, you know, we gave him the first floor and that's how we entered into SME financing. So it was, it was a bit by chance. But then on, then on, you know, we spent a few years doing SME. We did consumer, we became multi-product. Uh, eventually, we decided to focus and double down just on the consumer space. So, uh, you know, let's like zoom into that journey. Yeah. So, uh, uh, how did you, like, you know, from idea to execution, tell me that, like, did you, uh, you wanted to do it tech first, right? So, did you like build some sort of a online uh, workflow for the loan process? And it was, uh, for the first, was it like tie-ups? For the first year and a half, it was a Google form. <laughs> that, okay. was, that was the extent of tech that we had, right? Wait, so okay. we would get, it was the two of us uh, and another uh, friend of a friend who joined us as a product manager. And it was the three of us that we literally started off as a Google form, having a, uh, a borrower full of like 30, 40 fields. And then we would go in the background and try to dig up as much information, read their balance sheets, read their PLs. And through some amount of guesswork, we would actually give the loan. And so that loan from, from where? Like yeah. through a tie yeah. up with an NBFC or? No, or it was, so what we did is we, early 2014, we raised our first seed round, uh, which was a $2 million round. Uh, it wasn't easy to raise back then, especially. Yeah, I mean, $2 million is like a pretty big number yeah, for that. Right? Yeah, and also more than a big number, it was, you know, an industry that nobody's really looking at lending, credit. You know, we had, we met a lot and lot of VCs. And in fact, one of them even told us, uh, you guys are from Stanford, you don't have the acumen and putting that lightly uh, <laughs> to, to, to be able to collect money in India because it's a collection, uh, collections game. Okay. And, uh, and at, at first we thought he's just talking nonsense, but you know, over time we realized those were pearls of wisdom that he actually gave us on the ability to collect except, but anyways. We met a lot of VCs, finally convinced uh, three, uh, Asparta, Elevation, and uh, a family, family friends around as well. So got that, we got the two million and started giving our first few notes. Most of that was on paper. There was no tech. It was us understanding the process. And about six months later, we actually bought our NBFC. Okay. So like you, you were scouting around for some... NBFC, which had the license already, yes, may not have been active, uh, so that you can acquire and 
Yeah, that's, yeah. that's exactly what we did. Actually, we found one CA in some backyards of Kolkata who had, who had, who had 12 NBFCs with him. License. Wow. <laughs> we, we, picked, we picked one of his cupboard and <laughs> did as much, as much diligence as we could on that to make sure everything was clean and everything was kosher and regulatory and then applied to the RBI for a change and stuff like that. And so made it very clean and kosher. But you know, it, it wasn't easy back then finding NBFCs and, and seems like life has come a full circle now because everyone in FinTech today wants an NBFC. Yeah, right, right, right. Like, uh, what is the process you use to find the NBFC? Like, uh, I'm sure there wouldn't have been like some online platforms where you can... <laughs> definitely not. You have, I mean, uh, you have a lot of, you know, brokers, advisors, well, some of these consultants, sometimes the big four, etc., etc., who are, you know, uh, sometimes help you out with this type of stuff. No, okay, okay, okay. Okay, so uh, six months down, you got your NBFC license, so now you're like a fully compliant yeah. lending business. Yeah, yeah, and then we actually started to hire a few folks. We hired the first person we had properly hired was our head of credit, right? because we didn't know how to give credit. We were just like shooting off our hip at that point. But then we got in somebody who has who has done credit, who has given out loans, and uh, then we the next person we got was a sales, a very junior sales guy. And so then on, we actually. I think in 2014, all in all, we must have done maybe six loans, uh, which was nothing. But that's 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 really how we actually started. Uh, and yeah, those were the rules. We were see five of us by the end of 2014, uh, only six customers, and I, I think maybe told me about you know one or two crores in terms of loans that we had given out. Okay, 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 okay. And so, like, like you could just go year by year. So, 15, 2015, what was the yeah, story like? Yeah, so 15, 16 was all about, you know, tying up with e-commerce players because we didn't want to just source SMEs just through Google or through brokers, etc. So, we wanted to have strategic tie-ups. Yeah. So, we tied up with the knights of Amazon, Flipkart, etc. Because these platforms, your Mintra is a bomb. These platforms are really growing at that point in time. And we realized that as they grow, the sellers of these platforms would need working capital to keep up with the growth of the e-commerce platforms, right? And so we started working with them, saying, hey, why don't we finance your sellers? And that's really how we actually kind of started the business, financing a lot of the sellers of these e-commerce platforms. I don't remember the numbers we did back then, but we went from, I think, two years from about one crore in loans to, I think, at least about 30, 40 crores. Uh, uh, with also kind of bad debts, very, very low at that point in time. So uh, these uh, Amazon Flipkart sellers, uh, you were uh, like doing that bill discounting, like like if they have to receive, let's say, one lakh from Amazon for products sold, you would give no, them. No, it was not exactly. It was, no, it was not exactly that. Uh, we were kind of giving longer term loans. We were assessing, you know, how active of these guys been on Amazon Flipkart. What are the last six months saying that they sold? Let's say in six months they sold, let's say twenty lakhs. We felt that in the next six months with the season, it's a company, these guys could sell another 50 lakhs. So we would actually give them a loan of 15, 20, 30 lakhs. And then actually, it was pretty unique. We tied up with Amazon Flipkart to create an escrow mechanism where whatever money this person sold on their platform would be routed through us as a repayment. So we would, we would take out what the borrower owner and pass the balance back. 
Uh, okay, so whatever is the monthly installment that would come get first. paid off first, exactly. and, and then the uh, the, exactly. the merchant exactly. gets or the seller gets paid. Exactly. Oh, okay, exactly. amazing! How did you crack these deals with Amazon and Flipkart? Like that, it's there's like a pretty major adlock for you, yeah, right? Yeah, in fact, that that adlock on Amazon has led to a lot of good things in our in our journey, and I'll talk about that, right? Well, it was actually funny. It was a, a business school senior of us who was running seller services at Amazon. <laughs> That's how the conversation started. And it was just, you know, as as luck would have it, sometimes you have a friend in the right places and they were also looking for something to supercharge their business and, and start just online, I guess. And once they started working with Amazon, then you know everybody wants to work with you. What did this lead to, this Amazon unlock, like you said? Yeah, so ultimately, you know, as we did, you know, for spend maybe two, three years doing Amazon and all the others, but ultimately what happened, we grew a lot of this business, but then it was around, I would say, 2019, where this business was growing. It was good. It was it was an interesting business, but it was in 2019 that you know, having worked four years with Amazon, they were like, "Hey, if you want to provide credit on the consumer side, and since you guys only know us, let us you know um, start a joint program on the consumer side where we will co-develop the product with you guys. It will be of massive scale." We will give you mutual exclusivity. So you work only with us on e-commerce and we work only with you on the lending side. And also we would take an equity stake in your company. And, uh, and you know, that really began in some ways our evolution and journey into the consumer credit side of the world. Wow. Okay. So, uh, like before this, by 2019, what was your, uh, like, uh, yeah, don't book. Yeah, yeah, you know, 2019 was a fun year. Well, uh, it just for, I think it was October 2019 when, uh, uh, the ILFS crisis happened. Uh, yeah. And at that point, our notebook was at peak. We had about 1200 crores. So we had gone from like 50 crores in 2015 or 16 to 1200 crores in 2019. And uh, I'll never forget that day, October 2nd, actually, I was upon a day where the ILFS crisis happened. And it was then that I felt that our world came crashing. Uh, because and then, you know, one crisis after another for the next three years, because we had just come out of Demon and GST, which had impacted us, but not that bad. So there was some default things. If you the book, nothing crazy. It was about 4-5%. But when the ILFS crisis happened and we were not a profitable company back then, there was a flight to quantity and suddenly overnight, a loan of our debt clients got opened for no fault of our own because there was fraud at ILFS and the larger NBFC kind of macro. Uh, and that was a very interesting, you know, 2019 was a very interesting, challenging year for us. Uh, we had to really, we looked at the business. We had to obviously uh, take some hard decisions in terms of cutting costs, name of people. We did all the hard work brought down our burn by almost 50% from I think in a span of eight, nine months. And the business was starting to look good again. And beyond March 20, we entered into COVID. Perfect. So as you know, COVID was a fun, fun couple of years for everyone, but particularly in lending, because in March, end of March, early April, the RBI governor actually said that, you know, if you're an NBFC, all your borrowers are allowed to not repay you. But guess yeah, what? You yeah. have to repay the banks. You have to repay the banks. And right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that loan moratorium was only for retail. Yeah, was one side. Yeah. Right? So we were stuck. Yeah. We were like, if this continues for three months with a lot of cash, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. 
But somehow, I literally, by the grace of God and luck, we, we survived the period. It was hard. It was tough. We had some management changes. People doubted us. There was a lot of bad PR about us. Um, and all this while, you know, just before, before COVID, during the ILFS crisis also, there was a company that was about to acquire us that fell through at the last minute. Uh, and so all this happened, but finally we got out of it. And, you know, the reason we were able to get out was because our Bino Paylator product, which had started with Amazon a couple of years ago, we already started to take off in, as COVID hit. And so as we entered COVID in March 20, we had maybe about 300,000 customers. And as by the end of wave two of this COVID... 300,000 is, uh, you're talking of the B2C customers, no, was, not the... It was both. It was SME, B2C, everything put together. But uh, by the end of wave two, which was in January or Feb, of COVID, we were at 3 million customers or 2 million, 2 and a half million customers, right? So that one year of great yeah, growth, no, no, no. we were like, okay, it's time to change the business and time to double down and focus on this product that's really growing for us. Okay. So yeah, from 200 crore, you went to 1200 crore. How were you funding this? Uh, was it through debt? Uh, yeah, or this was through you raised more money? Yeah, yeah. so yeah. this was through a combination of equity and debt. Uh, we had yeah. raised money from Sequoia, Remit. Creations raised close to about a hundred odd million in terms of equity, but also much more in terms of debt as well. And we started building the first few first platform of its kind called Coinending, where we actually would have other banks and NBFCs folded along with us. This was maybe 2018 or so. Okay, okay. So, so your uh, source of money was three essentially. Then one is. Uh, equity second is you borrow from a bank directly yes. at yeah. and so maybe you would borrow at 10 percent and you would lend out at 20 percent something like that I, I wish it was 10 percent it was more like 30 back okay. and it was like 14 but yeah you got the law the principle was correct and then the third was the co-lending and we actually right. where you would lend half of yes. the amount and half of the yes. amount would be a from the bank another nbsc yeah. out and, of bank. and we had a fourth yeah. we had a fourth source which was we had actually developed uh, a good base of about 200 family offices in HNIs who would actually consistently give us debt. And that source ended up being the most stickiest capital for us during our tough times during COVID. They never let us down. And you know, we are very proud of that base. And even that base till today is really growing with us. Okay. So so th this would be like a traditional businessman who wants uh, slightly better returns yeah. than market, yeah. but uh, at the same time, not like uh, they don't want to take crazy bets on like yeah, exactly. doing angel investments exactly. and all. And you know, you know, in the uh, I'm a Sindhi, like I said, in the Sindhi Gujarati Marwadi community, you have a lot of the communal yeah. offline money lenders. So a lot, yes, a lot yes, of them yes. were looking to deploy capital as well. So we would, like you said, give them good returns with good yield without craziness. So we tapped a lot of those sources. Uh, you would pay them similar, like like 14, 15 percent? Slightly higher, yeah, slightly 15, 16. Okay, okay, okay. And on an average, what was your uh, interest that you were earning? We were lending at roughly about 21, 22. Uh, which as we, as we realized, it took time to realize, it was not, it was not enough. The spread was not enough accounting for costs, NPAs, etc. Uh, you know, it, because I think you were not from the industry, uh, and this sounds like Apple Pie and Madhulun statement. It took us a while to really realize what the true unit economics of lending are. Because in lending, 
you realize when you mistake only one and a half years later when deports actually happens. Uh, right, right, right. Okay, okay. What are the unit economics of lending? Like, what what should a healthy lending business have as its unit economics? Like, based on your knowledge. Yeah, so you should at least have, you know, it should you should be able to have a spread view. That means your cost of borrowing minus your cost of capital should at least be 10 to 12. So if you're lending at, at let's say, 22, you should not be borrowing at more than 12, which is where we are today. So let's say you've got 10 there, right? You've got, let's say, an NPA of 2%. So you should, anything in the two to three, you're okay. Beyond two to three, right, you're in trouble. So that 10 minus three becomes, let's say, seven. Seven, then your OPEX should probably be around three or four. It that finally gives you a 4% kind of ROA, right? We're not there yet as a coffee, but that's typically where mature businesses operate at. Okay, okay, got it, got it, okay. So, uh, why were you, uh, like you said, by 2019, you were not profitable yet. Um, now, my understanding is, uh, again, not as a lending industry insider, but typically reason why startups are not profitable is because they have to do cash burn to acquire customers. But in your case, you didn't really need to do that, right? No, we were doing it in a different manner, right? We were giving loans cheaper than it's taken to grow the hook. Uh, so we were giving okay. loans. So if a borrower deserved the 22% for their risk, we were giving loans at 18%. Uh, so it wasn't a cashback of sorts. It was, I would say, to some extent, mispriced because we thought that I don't need personally you'll manage to a two percent NPA, but it ended up being a four, four or five percent NPA, right? which is not bad if your yield is twenty three, but at eighteen it doesn't work, right? So for so for two three years we built the book that way, uh, and that and then obviously COVID and stuff like that. No, okay, okay, okay. And uh, how did you fix NPAs? Which is also another way of asking how did you fix collections? Yeah. Uh, because you were not from the industry and you told me that yeah. VC gave you advice that you don't know how to yeah. collect money. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting story. And I can tell you that today we probably have the best connections at the in, in-house. So it was, you know, around the same time, 2019-20, we really started to deep dive into collections. While rich is... You know, till, till 2019, how were you collecting? We had like, we we a small connections deal, but we would outsource a lot of it, right? Okay. Uh, to be honest, we were not spending as founders and as management team. We were not spending as much time on it as we should have spent, uh, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Your energies were more on growing you know, the loan. Stuff like that, right? Typical mistakes that anyone would make. But post-COVID, or since the start of COVID, till today, I probably spent at least 40-50% of my time collections because what we've realized is 50% of a fintech lending business is all the tech and the sexiness. 50% is collections. This is your to Right? There's no other way out of it. So what we've actually built over the last two, three years is two, three things of collections. One, a complete in-house tech stack that get automated collections. It can monitor communications between a connector when a person is speaking on the phone or going to the street. And app that Freedom Street collections used to make sure that we know where exactly he's headed going. There's a smart algorithm in the background that predicts what is the right collection strategy for each borrower. So, Akshay may require a phone call, I may require a Freedom Street visit, somebody may require Jensen SMS, right? And then the phone is, it's linked into our loan management system in real time. So, you can make a payment today, UPI, cash, check, etc. It kind of hits an account in real time, right? And there's a firm dashboard that I look at on a daily basis that every manager, connections manager also looks at, right? So it's like a one-click setup 
that has all those intra-author background that has really helped kind of change who we are as a collections entity. Over and above that, what we decided was say look everything in house. We find anything you outsource doesn't work, right? So we bring, we built it up as a core strength, as a core muscle, uh, and actually took all the resources in house. So we have corners, we have feet on street, and we don't shy away from collections. It is a collection business. You can do all the amazing stuff in risk and underwriting and evaluating borrowers. At the end of the day, you have to follow up on a call or some of the feet of street visit. And that's the only way. So it took three years of hard work to kind of manage connections as we change the business from SME to consumer as well. And since, since I would say maybe wave one of COVID or wave two of COVID, our NPS have been sub 2%. And uh, so, uh, you tell me about that acquisition which was about to happen. Like, was it an e-commerce company you wanted to acquire or another fintech company? It was, a, it was a large payment company, payment gateway company. I mean, you can guess. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, that night and for for that has recently put yeah. news for the decking or another deal as well. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, they they were a, a payment gateway. They wanted a, a lender who could obviously add value. And right, uh, right. Uh, by kind of lending to their customers, their, their merchants. Uh, yeah, and it was a it was a large deal. This and then honestly it fell apart in Levin Tower as we were ready to sign the documents, maybe a day or two. It was a couple of hundred million dollars, like the much sale much, price. Much north of that. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then and then we had to rebuild. We had to rebuild. But, but, what happened? Like, why didn't I still don't know when I find that picture? Yeah. Okay. I honestly, you know, I wish we, we did a lot of soul searching. Shashank and I to find out what happened. I don't have a good enough answer that I can actually give you. Okay. But it, it caused like distraction. You would have like, you've taken your eye off. Yeah, the it caused more than distraction. It caused, uh, it caused a lot of issues because this was the time of ILFS, right? And keep momentum in a deal like that. We actually, grew the book during the worst macro for NBFC. So probably all the worst or most stupid decisions we should not have taken during uh, a recessionary macro for the NBFC world, we ended up taking to make sure the acquisition went through. And yeah, that came to bite us badly over the next two years. What were those stupid decisions and why weren't they stupid? Like, help me understand the why also. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the why, you know, when, when you're tight on capital, uh, because of the ILFS crisis, the one thing you do is you hunker down, you control NPAs, you don't look at growth, you forget about growth. But when there is someone who is in the process of acquiring you, you cannot show but, it. Well, why, if you have money in the bank, then why not lend it out? We, like, why keep the money no, idle? we didn't have that much, right? Because we're to keep, a lot of our deadlines got pulled. So normally we like to keep enough buffer stock and all. We started eating to our buffer stocks, right? And our deadlines were not keeping pace. Because of the IFS crisis. So we, we came pretty close to the break to show growth, all for the sake of growth, which uh, we needed to show just for the acquisition. Otherwise, there was no good reason to show growth at that point in time. So for for a, a lending company, it's not like they have money in the bank, but they have deadlines, yeah. which like title them to money yeah. in the bank. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you constantly need uh, buffer. Yeah, we need to borrow so we can lend out, right? Mm. Right, right, right. And you also need uh, enough excess money for like meeting day-to-day -day expenses, yeah. payroll, yeah. etc. Yeah. 
uh, in case you're not able to get enough collections in that exactly. month, then exactly. And so we, we we got over all that the year of 2019 and started to turn around the business. And March 20 was when COVID hit. So hunkered down for another interesting one year period. So uh, once COVID hit, like, did you stop lending or like what was well, the first, because so we we stopped a bunch of the stuff, but we did not stop our buy now pay later product with Amazon that continued. Because those were small ticket loans, and we felt yeah. that there was we got enough capital for that. They were like our minor pilot was all five ten thousand rupee loans, and Misama there was growing, and we needed to keep some green shoots going in the business. So we continued that while we put a stop on most other things. Yeah, and minor uh, pilot gives you a better rate of interest. Like your spread is metal with uh, It's it is it is okay. But the main reason for doing Bino Paylender is because you acquire customers and then you ultimately cross-sell them other financial products. So it's a it's a customer acquisition engine for us. And uh, over the last year, year and a half, we started cross-selling a lot of those customers, personal loans and other types of work, which are very, very profitable. And that's, I mean, honestly, this is what Bajaj Finance has done for the last 20 years. Where they can you check out finance at a store when you go to Chroma and then they cross into your personal note. They've executed wonderfully over two decades. Uh, in some ways, we are the online version of that model. Okay, interesting. Uh, so, uh, in BNPL, typically the consumer doesn't bear the interest no, cost, right? No, the, the seller is. It's either the merchant uh, there, it's mostly the merchant that buys. It's interest we put Which is called subvention so, in the insider it, language. Yeah, okay. you, know, you know a lot of the insider language. So. Okay, got it. So, uh, what what is like? Give me an example of like what a, a typical BNPL customer would yield to you as a lifetime value. Like, how many transactions would you do? Yeah, you know, so, so so I'll just explain to you how it works first. So, when you're shopping, let's say on Amazon, you go there, you're checking out, you're buying, let's say I don't know headphones or something like that for five thousand, ten thousand rupees. You typically are a customer who we target, they don't have credit cards, right? So your only option is to kind of pay via debit card. But at that point, while you're shopping, we actually give you the option to get credit. And in real time, within three seconds, we actually underwrite you, right? So we pull out whatever data that we can get uh, from our models, from the bureau, et cetera, et cetera. And in under three seconds, we do your KYC. So we are very regulatory compliant. Uh, and we tell you, hey, okay, you've got a lower of one over 10,000 rupees, how you can continue your shopping here. So that's really, so what the tech that we've been able to build, the underwriting muscle and then ultimately the collection strength is really what's the, you know, the USP of the business that you actually get. Yeah, so the customers today are, you know, using us almost five to six times a month. Uh, uh, average customer cohorts, let's say 100 transactions in about 12 to 18 months. And they're still going, they're still going, right? So finally figure out how to ensure that lending is not a tradable business. You don't always have to keep originating new loans. Then, like I said, we take a small cohort of those customers, about 5 to 8% of them. And we cross out the larger ticket personal loan, which is where we end up making a lot of money. Okay. So so most of your customers would be using like 5, 10,000 rupee or yeah. something like sub 20,000 yeah. rupee multiple times uh, yeah. in a month. Yeah. So. And the reason the reason we've chosen that path, you know, that smaller ticket size is actually a very conscious strategy of no and grow. Because we are actually targeting customers who don't have credit cards. 70% of our customers don't have credit cards today. 
as you know, there are about you know 120, 130 million online shoppers. There are only 30 million unique credit cards in the country. Uh, so we are really going up with 100 million who don't have those cards. That's why we're starting them off at five, ten thousand rupees, and then three months later we give them slightly higher. Six months later, slightly higher as we see their performance. Okay. And uh, th- is this like a convert to EMI or is it like pay in 14 days? Like no, three we, types of we don't do any 14 day stuff. Uh, the minimum is one month. Maximum can be okay. installments of going up to 12 months. And, and uh, the entire amount uh, is borne by the merchant? Yeah. Uh, the like if someone is doing 12 months? Yeah, the interest is borne by the merchant. It, in about 80-90% of the cases, 10-20% of the cases, the customer bears the interest. Depending on the duration, I guess, like for short term. Yeah, exactly. Depending on duration, depending upon product also, right? So, for example, one of our largest merchants today is Policy Bazaar, where we finance the premiums for health insurance, right? In that case, it's a longer 10-year loan, 9 to 12 months, and the entire insurance, the premium, or rather the subvention is borne by by the merchant, right? Whereas in the case of, let's say, an airline ticket or make my trip, OTS don't have that kind of margin. So... They don't, so they so there's customer payment. So there is my tenure by product. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, like you uh, started with Amazon, uh, so you like built up this uh, three second approval mechanism and all that. Sure. Uh, what is the uh, underwriting strategy that you follow? Like, is it based on the Sybil score? Or? So that's one part of it. Uh, but even on the civil score, we look at the data, not just the score, and we print our own score based on the data we see at the bureau. The second is we have our own app that kind of has looked at a lot of personal finance management apps. So we help kind of people track budget, make expenses, etc., based on the SMSs that we see with consent, obviously. Uh, and then through that, we built a predictor of income. So we're able to predict to a pretty high degree what your income is. Yeah, because every time money hits your account, you will get an SMS alert. Exactly. Right? And third is in some cases, uh, with some merchants, we also kind of get to understand or we pre-filter with them, uh, you know, what is the behavior on the e-commerce platform. So, for example, if you just signed up on uh, Amazon or Make My Trip yesterday, you'll most likely not see this offer. We like to make sure customers have had some vintage on the platform. They have not displayed any fraud tendency. So there's like a qualification criteria there as well. Like somebody who uh, is frequently returning products that might be indicator of fraud. Yeah. Yeah. So they would not see that option. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 So, so your own app, uh, you may not be getting data for that from somebody who's buying no, an Amazon. No, this is a, it's a lookalike model, right? So we have we have had 10, 12 million downloads. You're right. It's not the same people who are coming on Amazon or make my trip available. But based on the data that we have and based on the incoming customer, let's say, on any of these platforms, and looking at the behind the sales bureau scores of both these segments of customers, we're able to build a lookalike model that is has high predictive power. So it's not the exact person, not the exact income, but it's a lookalike model. Can you explain this through some example? Like, say, someone from Bangalore with a credit score of 750. So, you would build a. Yeah, let, like, let's say. Yeah, like that. So, yeah. So, let's say someone from Bangalore who has, let's say, we have seen 20 SMSs, but we also know his shop on Amazon has a score of 750, has a credit, and let's say has a two wheeler loan. Uh, we are able to, or let's say, has a housing loan. We are able to triangulate that their monthly income is, let's say, 30,000, 40,000 rupees. Through the bureau, we also know what their 
debt obligations are because they have a year of the housing loan. So then we come up with what is a net disposable income. So we know that okay, this person, after all their salary and obligations, has a free cash flow of about 20,000. So our line should typically not be more than 25, 25% of their free capital. So for that person, we'll give a 5,000 rupee line. It's a, a much more simplified version than what actually happens. Yeah, typically, yeah, that's how yeah, we look yeah. at it. But, but how does this convert into lookalike? That's more. So this is for somebody who has the app, but for somebody who's not on the app and so, coming so to app. So we do a lot of pre-filtering exercises, right? So we've developed joint scores and stuff like that with the e-commerce partner. That can predict okay. some So the app data is essentially training your algorithms yes, yes, uh, to make better decisions. Yes. And those algorithms are then applied to e-commerce customers whose data you may not have, yeah. uh, but, but because score, of the training. But there's a score there. Uh, uh, and, and so th they would be like multiple scores we should get. Yes. Okay, like an e-commerce score, like on Amazon, how is this There's an e-commerce score, there's a bureau score, there's an income score, there's a fraud score. So all these phone come together and then we kind of give the person the And all this happens in and seconds. How do you generate an income score in three seconds? Like, wouldn't you typically ask for bank statement oh, or something no. like See, because you're giving 5,000 rupees, right? So... And it's while checkout on e-commerce. So you can't really ask the person for a bank statement, etc. There's too much friction in that. When we give the person the longer ticket personal loan, at that point, we ask for a bank statement for people who take it. Here, this is like I said, this is based on this interior, in, inside models with a high degree of confidence. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, amazing. Okay, got it. Okay. And so this must have evolved significantly from your original credit model, right? When you were lending to merchants. Yeah. What was the model at that time? Like, so that, you know, I, maybe that evolution. Yeah, that actually they were lending to merchants. They had a decent amount of manual intervention also, right? So we would collect the data and the pipes were digital, how we would get the data. But there was manual intervention in where there would be a credit manager who would look at the case in detail. Because then on the merchant side, the loans were like 15 lakhs, 20 lakhs, right? So you couldn't give it so fast and there was no need to give it so fast. You want to do a little more diligence. And so there it was a little more manual. There we had, there were models, but it was always uh, verified by a human being. Right? And so the problem there was you didn't have enough loans to train your models, right? Whereas now on the consumer side, on the consumer side in the last three years, we've done, I think, close to 30 million, 40 million loans. So in every loan, there's repayment data and that kind of really helps you build the model. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, okay. So that that lending to e-commerce merchants is like a, a easy to get in business, but hard to scale yeah. business. Like it's easy to start doing it yeah. because yeah. they want money. You get with yeah. one tie up, get a yeah. yeah. lot of business, but it's hard to scale it up. Yeah. Plus, I think uh, at one point of time there were a lot of companies which were operating in this. Space. Yeah. Uh, I think it also became pretty competitive, right? Yeah. Especially bill discounting yeah, and then, for e-commerce. The banks, because the, I would say we were not that high on the debt cost, right? Because of the larger ticket sizes, the banks got it. And the bank, you can't beat the bank's cost of capital, right? No matter how efficient you are in terms of customer experience, a lower price always the best customer experience. Even though they would take like two weeks to give an SME a loan, Whereas we would take two days. Yes, we would wait for like 400 goods, 500 goods lower. 
It's And that's the reason why you were not profitable also because that space was very competitive. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you didn't have a moat over their assets. You know. I said, and if I now look at the consumer business, the moat is very clearly three things, right? One is the acquisition channels that we have, deep pipes take into a lot of the large e-commerce players, which I don't think any bank can build. Or they, maybe they can, I don't want to say they can't, but it, it's pretty hard, right? Uh, because folks like Amazon are holding to very high service level agreements. So 99% success rates. Uh, during this Diwali, like we were seeing 400 transactions a second, and if you know if you don't meet those standards, right, then you're going to upset me quite. So the second mode is how we become connections and NPS, which I think banks obviously are there, but they may not be necessarily good at the smaller ticket side of stuff. You know, managing collections. Mm-hmm. You said three modes. Uh, uh, second is connections. So the, the third is kind of just you know customer experience. Making sure yeah. there's a good kind of CX uh, that you can do. Uh, for the app is a part of customer experience. Like when someone takes a loan, then the app they download the app to see what is the yeah. payment yeah. date. So they can, uh, but they can also see it on the Barker dashboard, right? You can see it on the Amazon yeah. dashboard or the Big Market dashboard. But about thirty percent, forty percent typically end up downloading the app, where they can obviously see all the loan details, but they can also see personal finance management, right? They can kind of use it. For managing budgeting, etc. Like uh, the app downloads have been driven by which factor? Like, is it people like like you spent money to market the app as a personal finance mostly, app, and hence yeah, it's mostly personal finance management. And just really recently, we've added over credit fees into that, and so that's a big area of focus for us this year. Where we'll probably be the only app that gives you personal finance management, but also gives you credit. And what is the app called? It's called Axio now. It used to be called Wonder. Okay. Uh, but now it's called Axio. Okay. And, and essentially, is you use it for budgeting, for figuring out your expenses, breakup of expenses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. And uh, do you also have like uh, investing and savings? In Not that? yet. Not yet. But that's uh, coming soon. Okay. Like you'll build that in-house or you'll collaborate with a fintech? Uh, I think we'll build the UX layers and stuff like that, but the underlying manufacturing of the products will will, will work with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're already very large yeah, yeah, we investment. Yeah, we don't need to build the entire thing. For us, though, credit is always going to be a core product. And then everything else we offer is just around making sure we engage the customers and can obviously make money. But credit is always going to be our entry point. So, uh, what are the uh, players you integrated with? Like we go, right? you said, that's one of your modes, your integrations. Yeah, about, we've got about three thousand odd merchants, but some of the larger ones are obviously Amazon, Big Mart, Policy Bazaar, a big one with Pay and all their merchants. A lot of D2C brands, healthcare, red tech. So, uh, seven eight categories at three thousand merchants, and obviously that that keeps growing. Yeah. Okay. So for a payment gateway, it makes sense to have a lending play because uh, checkout finance exactly. is seamless exactly. for them. Exactly. They see higher AOVs, they see higher AOVs, they see better margins. Uh, your average order value AOV. And, and what, what do you mean by that? That they see higher oh, AOVs? So typically, let's say a person is checking out on a, on a D2C brand and they're buying headphones for 2,000 rupees without credit. But there is a credit option they would typically by something slightly higher for 3000 4000 Ah, okay, 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 okay. And, I'm going to so, and payment gateway companies 
earned by the size of transactions, exactly. percentage yeah. of that. Yeah. So it makes sense yeah. for them. Okay, 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 amazing. And uh, your connection strategy also must have changed when you pivoted from SME to consumer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, do you still use feet on street? Or, because for consumer, feet on street is not scalable, right? No, we, we use it very sparingly for, you know, later buckets. So let me give an example, right? Uh, all our nodes are due on the 5th of the month, right? That's called, that's called the due date. Uh, so typically about on the due date, 15% of the people don't pay. That's our bounce. And then the next 30 days, about 91 to 92% of those 15 people end up paying through, telecoll- through telecollections, right? That is the first bucket. Telecollection, SMS, email, all, like all, on, all the digital, digital. Tele, all of that stuff, right? That is the first bucket, as we kind of call it, with collections. That's where the battle is what are lost. So only now, only 10% of that 15%, so 1.5% are left. They go to the subsequent buckets. Now, for some of most people, if it is a larger ticket size, if they're in a larger city, you'll use feet on street. Otherwise, there also, there's about 50-60% telecalling, etc. Right? So you're right, the feed on street is much less, but we still think it's an important component. Okay. Oh, what is the impact for a consumer when they miss paying on due date? Uh, do they, then, does the credit score go down immediately or uh, is there a grace period? Yeah, so typically after 30 days, the credit score really starts to go down. If they're not paying back for 30 days. But we allow, we obviously allow customers the grace period of three days. We don't charge them a late fee and all of that stuff if they, if they are within the grace period. But beyond that, there is a late fee that Eurosport does get impacted. And then we don't, we don't follow up with the customer, right? I mean, you've taken credit, now you have to pay it back. There are no free lunches. Okay. So like if 5th of April is due date, by 8th you pay, it's okay. Yeah. You don't lose your credit rating yeah, and all. Yeah. But beyond that, then you, you get charged a late fee. Yeah. So your credit yeah. rating goes down and so on. Okay. 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 Got it. And this, uh, uh, like the connection mechanism must be all online. Like they could just do a YouTube yeah, yeah. or whatever. Anything they want, right? It's mostly 95% is all digital. So UPI... NEFT, stuff like that. I think less than 5%, some people want to pay cash or something, but we don't say no. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, are you also exploring uh, embedded finance? Like, you know, uh, say there is a investment app and you, like, for example, Cred has some peer-to-peer lending collaboration yeah. with, I, I think, yeah. Lending Club or some such. Uh, so, so you know, like that, like say ET Money could be an app where you could plug-in lending for that app, like, like that kind of... Uh, yeah, you know, that's... In some ways, BNPL is, is the father of embedded finance, right? And when you're plugging it into... Yes, exactly. I think for now, we're going to stay focused on the BNPL side and build the customer journey, but that's something we could definitely yeah. look at because it's a similar skill set that we've actually developed, right? Okay. Uh, let's talk about the organization. Uh, so, what is your headcount now? And, and you know, what did you learn about org building, culture building? Can you share some of your lessons over yeah, there? Yeah, so the org is probably about 500, 600 people today. Uh, in terms of, you know, org building, you know, there are two three things that we learned. One is, in this type of business, you want both types of people, finance background as well as your tech background, right? Because you need the tech folks, the product folks to keep pushing you forward in terms of the customer experience. We obsessed about that. But you want the traditional thin folks because this is lending and you will lose your shirt very quickly, right? So we 
we try to maintain that balance at all levels within the org so that little bit of that creative tension uh, does exist always between the fin and the tech teams. Uh, the second thing is, you know, we, we believe one way is it kind of homegrown in-house talent. So uh, our, I would say about almost 50 to 60% of our top 80 people in the company have crossed five years. In our senior, you know, in our senior team, again, which is about 10 people, barring one or two, almost everyone's been around for six, seven years. Uh, our CFO and our chief product officer joined us seven years ago as junior folks and have risen through the ranks and now part of the management team, right? So we love and like to encourage folks who kind of been with us through the and have obviously kind of uh, displayed the fact that they uh, they can do it. And ultimately, we just like kind of a no-nonsense kind of attitude. Well, and we have made mistakes, obviously, when it comes to the people side. We made a lot of hiring mistakes. Uh, you know, sometimes you like to take people from large, well-established organizations who are rock stars there. But you end up typically realizing that they were rock stars because of the processes set that those organizations are not necessarily because of their own ability. So once you bring them to a younger, more agile startup, they feel like a fish out of water, right? So I think, you know, we've made a bunch of those mistakes and I, I, I think you're better for it, right? You've learned those. And so I think the one thing now is between Shashank and me, we obviously kind of divvy up what we both are good at. But we've got a core team that hopefully kind of has been around for long, has been around through the tough times, and it's only onwards and upwards from here. Okay. Uh, 500 is a pretty lean size. Uh, what's your loan book at today? Well, it's almost now back to 1200 crores. So we had brought down to about from 1200 back to about 200 and built it back up. Okay. Uh, and I, I guess 500 will be pretty lean by industry standards, right? For a 1200 crore loan book. Uh, yes and no, because we do have a lot of folks from, you know, we don't have any, a very few sales folks. Uh, we have decent, we have decent number of collections. We have uh, a decent number of tech and product who, as you know, are probably not. Uh, the cheapest resources in the country today, right? So they're super great, talented people, but obviously, uh, covered good prices, right? So, uh, yeah, then we have a few outsourced folks as well from like callers and customer service and stuff over and above. Okay. So, uh, who are your competitors in this space, sir? Like others? Yeah, you know, you, you would be seeing. DNPL companies as your competitors. Yeah, right? and you, have, you know, obviously you've got a lot of competitors who we respect in this space, right? You've got both resist money, lazy pay, early salary, etc. Who are, again, well-established, well-regulated companies. As we venture into the offline world, uh, which we will do soon and we started to experiments, you will come across the big giants of the bajajas of the world. <laughs> How are you venturing into offline? What's the plan then? Through, through partnerships with and gateways, boss players, etc. So we will never put a person in the store. Uh, we will work with aggregators like a GoPay, a Pine Labs, a RazorPay, etc. Okay, so like at the time the shopkeeper is swiping, the shopkeeper will get that option yes. and he can offer it to his customer yes. to increase his average order value. Exactly. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Got it, got it. Okay. And uh, what about getting into credit cards? Uh, because you are in a way doing that, right? Like when you yeah. give someone a 5,000 approval, limit, yeah. it's like a... Yeah, so you know, that's that's on the cards. Uh, we were 
you know, we were always apprehensive because of the regulatory structures of NBFCs doing credit cards. Uh, some people took options that obviously now the RBI has said it's not kosher. So we are working through the right regulatory structures and that's definitely something on the card that we would Okay, like only a bank can issue a credit card yeah. as per right. only a bank. Yeah, so the only way to do it now is through a co-branded with a bank, etc. So those are options you want. And like there was some uh, major change in regulations because of which a lot of fintechs got affected. Yeah. What was that like? Where you could not offer so uh, a lot of credit or yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of fintechs were using a PPL card, which is a prepaid instrument, and mimicking it to be a credit card, uh, which obviously the RBI didn't like. Now, some could say it's a gray area, some could say it's illegal, I want to point on that, but RBI clearly didn't like it, and so they've shut that down. So, a prepaid instrument is like a debit card, like something which reflects your actual balance in yeah. some... So, you are the sort of a credit now is funding that prepaid instrument at the background to credit. So, like, as soon as you want to spend, you can load it up with the yeah. money, yeah. which is a loan, yeah. basically. Yeah. So, not the intended use that the RBI had come up for prepaid cards with. So, it's, it's kind of been shut down. But I'm sure people will evolve at wide importance. Uh, what about the UPI apps? Do you see them as competition? Like uh, uh, Paytm is yeah, big time. Yeah, I think Paytm definitely is a uh, competition. I think, however, obviously, as much as we respect them, I think Paytm is always going to be in some ways close to, right? They will serve within their ecosystem. Typically, Players outside the Paytm ecosystem will not want to work with Paytm, right? So, which is why we are a bit kind of more open stack in that sense. We will work with all the players, right? In Amazon, Wakemart, Tata, etc., right? And so, in that sense, hopefully, we become the arms dealer to a bunch of large platforms. Wow, amazing. Okay. And, you know, where do you see yourself like five years down the line? Well, you know, so we have today at six million customers. Uh, we are hoping to close this financial year closer to 10 million. Uh, we're adding almost, you know, 400,000 customers a month. Uh, you know, I think in the next, uh, I would say three to four years, the goal is to get to about 25 million customers. Uh, we are now financing almost about four. 50 calls a month. Again, or is by March to get that to about 600 and in the next three years, get that to about two or 3,000. Finally, I think, you know, build a good profitable business and in about three years, go public because, I mean, the markets uh, for financial services in India have always been good. If you can build a good track record, a good business, there's always a good opportunity to kind of hit the public markets and control your own destiny. And you want to be pure consumer play like that, uh, SME lending is something yeah. you've completely stopped. Yeah, I think we'll be, you know, we've gone from being a multi-product company to a single product, but with a focus on the consumer journey and how they start with us and how they kind of, how we build it through their lives, right? Now, as the customers evolve with us, we may add in more products, but the focus is always going to be on serving those customers, those 20, 30 million customers that we would always have. You know, you, you had uh, all of those, like, Near-death experiences of island affairs and COVID. Uh, you know, how did you feel during those times when, like, when it when it looked like it was the darkest kind of a? Yeah, you know, there are a few things that you you rely on. Obviously, the good stuff is family, your co-founder, your colleagues at work, etc., who make you go through those phases. But I always felt that I needed something outside, and I've always been a very competitive person, person who loves sports a lot. So. Uh, around the early days of COVID is when I started picking up uh, triathlons. So I do I do do Ironman triathlons a year, and I I I train a lot for that. So I train about 
to 12 hours of week and being, being able to do an Ironman triathlon and, and, you know, be disciplined, make sure you finish that race, which is a very, very hard race to do. Actually has helped me focus on work. But in work, obviously, it's always ups and downs. Even today, we have a lot of downs. We have a lot of ups. But it kind of makes you show up at office every day. That discipline makes you kind of make sure you never give up because you can't give up in the middle of a race. And so in some ways, you know, you've learned to kind of equate the race of the Ironman journey to the race of running a startup. And that's that's actually helps a lot. And the only advice if I could give fellow entrepreneurs is find that something outside work that kind of keeps your juices going. Amazing. Amazing. Like you have raised almost, I think, $200 million dollars by now. About $150. Okay. And uh, so, you know, like, w- what are your lessons on fundraise and that you'd like to advise uh, to young aspiring entrepreneurs? Take less early on. We made we made a mistake of a series A taking too much. How much did you take it? I think we had taken about 13 million, which was uh, on a 25 or 13 million pre-money. So it was almost like a 30% dilution, which there was no need. You can never recover from that. In later rounds, no matter how low you keep your dilution, right? I think that was yeah. a that was a mistake. We should have, I think, in your zeal of kind of you know trying to uh, go one upmanship on other startups and take more money and get into the headlines, you end up doing things that you shouldn't do. It only uh, for just take the amount of money that you need, uh, not more, and and then build the business accordingly. Again, Apple by Margaret's statement, but compared out of excitement, people tend to really forget that. I mean, and the second thing is, you know, you are going to hear a lot of no's. So be ready for that and, and, and just have conviction on yourself. How many, what is, what's the no to one ratio at like seed stage? Uh, that's the toughest, right? Like, what's no, actually, actually, that was not the toughest for us. The toughest one was for us that we did last year. We're just coming out of yeah. COVID, coming out of our problems, coming out of the that we had done. I think there, that was uh, maybe of 50 to 1, 50 lows to 1, yes. And And this is in a, like a market where the universe itself would be like maybe 100, 200. Yeah, and 2021 was like a great year for most startups, right? But we had our challenges that day, but we have got faster and now we're back up again. Mm. Okay. And I think you raised about $50 million, right? Like the round we did last year. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, cool. And let me. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.